Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined by Brian Gottlieb. And we're going to be doing some more alchemy today. Maybe the last one for a little bit for all of the uh, anti-alchemy folks out there. But we also have some previews from uh, Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. So that's cool. Eternal preview season marches on. If you don't like the new cards we were talking about last week, just hang around and there'll be more new cards right <laughs> around the corner. Well, there's there's a little break until uh, like previews officially start, right? Like this is just a little teaser, I guess. That seems correct to me. Uh, excited for the set, though. I didn't have a huge amount of really like any association with the original Kamigawa run that was in one of my downtimes. So, oh, no. Yeah, when, when I returned to Magic, it was at the very tail end of Kamigawa's legality and standard. And so I didn't go back and pick it up as like a limited format, but I'm familiar with a bunch of the cards for their impact uh, on the tail end of standard. And of course, the more iconic ones, which have lasted throughout the eternal formats I'm familiar with. But as far as just like being in the midst of Kamigawa block, not really super tight to me, but I think I can reveal this. I'm going to reveal it here for the first time ever. Oh, this, wow. This next pass through Kamigawa, I actually got to have some input on some of these cards. Uh, I did a, a contract position with Wizards on this set. First time I ever had a hand in designing the magic cards. And uh, my my influence is very, 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 very small over the set. I want to make that clear. So uh, don't yell at me if there's something you don't like. I promise I didn't have anything to do with that particular thing. But if you love something, it was 100% my idea. And I fixed that card without a doubt. I, I'm pretty sure you're going to have to expand on that because I didn't know that we were revealing that. And I know that there are going to be a lot of questions. Uh, okay. I, I just was brought in very late in the process to give some broad feedback on the set. And that's about it. I mean, it wasn't really a super formal thing. I haven't played with the cards. I was doing it all just on site. And the, the folks at Wizards listened to my feedback, thought about it, uh, and weighed it in their final decisions. Okay. So uh, do you know approximately like how much time you spent? Uh, it was over a two-week period that I was involved with it. So, okay. you know, like I said, my role is, I don't want to overstate my role, extremely small. Um, but just trying to catch any outliers, think about things that maybe uh, had gotten lost in the shuffle and, just, you know, a, a, a general pass through uh, once over, if you will. Okay. And then while this was going on, did you get to like see FFL decks or anything nope. like that? Okay. Nope. It was completely isolated. So that no, uh, no context really, which is uh, it, it's a challenge, you know, but you're still able to give a, a measure of feedback in that scenario. And uh, I, I think that getting that feedback is something I've talked about. You know, I wasn't trying to make work for myself. I just thought it was a good idea in general to bring in some outside people. So when you work in a group, like the way Wizards does, it can be very easy to just kind of focus in on one thing, get tunnel vision. And I think it's always good to be able to bring in some outside eyes. So uh, they, you know, they acted on that feedback. And I, I worked alongside someone else who folks might be familiar with. I'll leave it to them if, if they're going to say uh, what their role is. But it, it, was, it was good. It was a really positive process. And it was exciting for me just as someone who has been around the game for so long um, to be able to contribute. And also just got to like 
give props to wizards because, you know, I'm not always super kind to wizards. I can be very, <laughs> very critical and uh, still willing to bring me in to work on the product. So I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I can speak to some of the stuff that you're talking about, too, where uh, I, I sort of had the the same experience you did, at least for like the first few days I was there, where uh, this was... Um, Concentark uh, here, right? So like, mm-hmm. I I get there and they're they basically just like printed me out set files for all the stuff, and this is obviously like more broad than what you're talking about working with. But it was like, all right, here are all the set files for like the things that are in FFL with cons being the newest set, and it was just like, you know, go go through here if you have thoughts on a card, let us know because. You know, they they have been working with the stuff for so long that it's easy to get tunnel visioned. And I certainly fell prey to that like many months later when I was still working there. Right. Uh, So I was kind of like off on an island on my own, like looking through these files, uh, thinking about things, making like mental notes, building decks, et cetera. And I think that uh, for me personally, that was a ton of fun because I don't know, just get to have like this this dump of information to work with and my my brain just loves it right and then they like it because they get that outsider perspective which you pointed out is so very valuable and uh yeah i i mean i it's hard to say like how much of an impact i had or how much of an impact you had or whatever but regardless it is a valuable thing to get that and it's it's cool that they are doing a thing like this uh because i you know i i think that especially given like the last few years or whatever, it's like anything that they can do to help ease the process a little bit and make it so maybe they don't get blindsided, but like things being like a little bit too strong or whatever yeah. uh, is definitely very helpful. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we've, we keep talking about safety valves and how we keep spotting safety valves on cards. It's clear that they are taking the issues that we had going back to throwing a bell drain and that surrounding time period. They're taking those issues seriously. They, they realized I don't want to speak for them. I feel they've realized that some of the things they did in that time period were a step too far. And they certainly have taken steps to make sure you don't go down that road again. And also we have the safety valve of alchemy now. So there's a lot of ways to kind of correct these things that could go wrong. Right. And we were uh, very harsh during that time period, but I, I guess we haven't necessarily like gone back and, and updated our our stance or whatever, where it's like these last few sets, you know, there are some outliers, right? Like Omnath, Alrin's Epiphany, whatever. But for the most part, you know, since it was very clear that there was a problem, it does seem like that has gotten reined in a lot. Oh, and, yeah. You know, the, the sets have both been like pretty fun and exciting and also not super busted like they were. So overall, good news. Agreed. And and that's one of the reasons why, like, I think I went a little bit harder than Alrin's Epiphany than I would have in a lot of spots is I just thought everything else was so good. I thought they had made such strides in like bringing the power level back down and making an environment where things could be exciting and there could be a bunch of good decks competing. And it was just these one or two outliers that were really preventing us from getting to that world. Right. Yeah, I mean, before it was like, all right, well, if you ban Oko, then you, you know, then Fires yes. is a problem and uh, whatever. We played we play this game week to week. We, yeah. we were here doing it where, uh, yeah, you could ban this, but then you have to do this. And it was just no end of disasters where it feels like the disasters in Standard are kind of small. And I I think Alchemy is sort of displaying that in a lot of ways. And we will get to that later. We will. So, uh, Champions of Kamigawa was not like right when I started going hard. It was... I guess like onslaught mirrored in and then 
champions. So like I got my first uh, constructed GP top eight during champions. And oh, I, nice. I distinctly remember, you know, going to my friend's house every weekend and just like doing a bunch of drafts or traveling to PTQs or, or whatever. And like I was playing this set and these formats a ton. And I, I guess I didn't really like realize how kind of like excited I was going to be for this set until I started watching the live stream. It was like, yeah, this is all awesome. Like I'm definitely enjoying like a lot of this. And it seemed like a lot of other people were like, there were, there were upwards of 10,000 people watching the preview stream when it was That's going awesome. on, which is awesome. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we get hyped in general for like these nostalgic trips back to planes. It does seem like, the excitement rolls a little harder for the nostalgia sets than it does for just the new IPs. And you would expect that. I mean, that's just sort of how it works. It's why Hollywood is loaded with sequels, right? It's way easier to sell something that people are already familiar with. So I, I'm not shocked to hear that reaction, but I do think there's something special about Kamigawa for a set that mechanically was sort of cast aside and, and really looked at as a, a bunch of failed experiments it's funny how much the flavor and the tone of the set has really resonated with people over time. Yeah. I mean, uh, like the previews are like, you know, Ninja Planeswalker, Dragon, and uh, like an Ogre Demon, right? And it's just like, that is all stuff that resonates and hits. Yep. So I'm just like, yeah, this is cool. And then obviously like the full art basics uh, are just absurd in, in the best way possible, you know? Yep. Beautiful pieces. Seems like people really like those two. So, so far, so good, I think. That's that's my read as well. Uh, you know, a lot of variants. And uh, sorry yeah. for our friends at Scryfall who are going to be putting in all those variants one by one. Yeah, but, I mean, there was definitely a lot going on with like the Hidetsugo variants, especially as I was yep. watching the stream where I'm just like, eh, it's not for me. You know, that, that's Whatever. not going away. That's not going away. So just either accept it and move on or don't accept it but you got to move on anyway so yeah so you want to talk about some card specifics here i would love to let's talk about these these three preview cards we were blessed with today kaito shizuki one ub legendary planeswalker kaito three starting loyalty at the beginning of your end step if this entered the battlefield this turn he phases out plus one draw card then discard a card unless you attack to this turn Minus two, create a 1-1 one, one blue ninja creature token with this creature can't be blocked. And minus seven, you get an emblem with whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, search your library for a blue or black creature card, put it onto the battlefield and shuffle. Uh, worth noting, this, this question came up during the stream. Um, it, like, phasing doesn't cause a thing to enter the battlefield. Right. So this thing only triggers on the turn you cast it or if you blink it or whatever uh phasing it is still there it's just treated like it is not there so this is not like un unattackable or not attackable planeswalker or whatever it just protects itself for the first turn which is cool really cool and i i soured on the static abilities on planeswalker thing very quickly but i think kaido is a cool way to call back to that and have it not really be quite so static it's a planeswalker that does something extra but it doesn't require this persistent mental tax on you to be like, oh, what does this do again at all times, no matter what? It's just doing that thing once, making sure it's able to gain some footholds onto the battlefield. And that means the first time you're able to realistically attack Kaido, it's sitting at five loyalty already if you're just plusing and plusing. And that's a pretty 
big loyalty base for a three mana planeswalker granted it's a little bit deeper in the game so it's more likely you have a body that is meaningfully interacting with that sizing at that point and also Kaido's not a super defensive planeswalker so it's not like it's going to be doing that thing although it can protect itself you know the one one blue ninja creature token although it can't be blocked it can block so it's got some defensive function I like how the minus two plays well with the plus one, where if you make this unblockable ninja and keep it around, you're just able to plus one to draw a card. That's real powerful on a three mana planeswalker. And then the ultimate, uh, pretty close to game winning. I I think this card is solid, interesting, fun, and not really broken or ultra threatening. And I am happy to have those kind of planeswalkers in the mix always. Same. Uh, a lot of this thing's success is going to depend heavily on like the the stuff around it but obviously they know that ninjas is a widely beloved like theme mechanic however you want to look at it and now you have a ninja planeswalker i would imagine that there's you know some sort of like rogues type of stuff you know just in in ninja themed right and i would hope that this card sees play you know yeah, even in the context of like the cards we're working with now, it's easy to I'm going to talk, I guess, a little alchemy now, which is weird how we're, we're going to have to do a little bit of both when we talk. about. Yeah, that's cards. fine. I mean, I, I think it does make sense if, if we're talking because we mostly talk about the previews in the context of standard. I guess we sort of have to do it in terms of alchemy now, too. Yeah, well, I, I would mention this card alongside like the mono black decks, which are very, very good and just play a bunch of fodder. They're loaded with one drops and you're happy, happily chump attacking with them quite often in that deck. It's very easy to add an additional color if you need to. Uh, as far as like a sideboard juke against control decks where they can't really pressure Kaido, that could be a really nice change up. I have sword in my sideboard currently and the plus ones are pretty functionally similar. And yeah. against control, you usually just have a one drop line around that you can be attacking with anyway. Yes, you do. And doing the trick of mana cheaper, also good. But I mean, let's not forget the points where you can use discard as a benefit. Any type of reanimator setups are going to want to put cards into the bin. Very true. And Kaido does that very well. So a, a bunch of really cool pieces on this card. And it is flavorful for a Ninja Planeswalker. I, I think this is just a home run. I really like it. Yeah, it's good. I mean, there have been so many cards like this that we previewed, and I'm like, oh, I could see it in, you know, if things break like this way or that way or whatever. And then recently, a lot of that stuff has fallen short. Yep. Jace Cunning Castaway comes to mind immediately. Yeah. Nico Eris, too. Mm -hmm. And I like those Planeswalkers in theory, just like the formats have not really lined up for them to be successful. But I don't know. Like, like you said, for the Mono Black deck specifically, it's like, well, yeah, when you put it in that context, I mean, I'm already using Sorin, and this would likely be an upgrade to that, at least in, in terms of alchemy. So uh, maybe, you know, I'm not yeah. going to say like, yeah, slam dunk, this will see play or whatever. But it, it also loops back to the first point we were making about the, the cards that are being, being printed in general. A lot of this stuff that we're talking about that missed existed in the context of Fires Invention and Nexus of Fate. And right. A lot of silly stuff and as that stuff gets toned down cards like this seem more and more appealing yeah but when we're talking in terms of actual standard and epiphany still existing i mean if there's some sort of disruptive aggro deck which you know they, that's historically how they've built like demir creature decks then yes. 
I could see that being successful and then this scene play, but like, you know, assuming that this were like a, a gruel planeswalker or whatever, it's like, I don't think it would be a, a good fit for what those sort of decks need to accomplish in order to succeed. Yeah, fair so, enough. Yeah, I, I like it. I'm hopeful. Same Zeus. Uh, Hidetsugo, Devouring Chaos, 3B, 4, 4, Legendary Creature, Ogre, Demon, B, Sacrifice a Creature, Scry 2, 2R, Tap, Exile the top card of your library. You may play that card this turn. When you exile a non-land card this way, this deals damage equal to the exiled card's mana value to any target. I am less high on this card. Yeah, I am skeptical that this really matters in constructed spaces, but people love this type of effect. I kind of love this type of effect. I like doing the thing where you try to float the huge thing to the top of your library. So there's there's a deck that does this in modern now, right? Off of one of the Modern Horizons two base cards. Yeah, calibrated blasts, yeah, throws just, of chaos, a bunch of lands. Does with this like, do anything there? I mean, it, it doesn't get hit off throws of chaos, so you're still cascading safely to your suspend card. I uh, I mean, I guess it could help. Like if you wanted another potential enabler, I could see it, but it's still just like four mana creature that you need to be able to untap with. So. Yep. I, I don't think it's going to like help you win games. It gives you like more threats in theory, but sure. Yes. Sure. Maybe some more outs too, if you're being targeted with like negate type effects, but usually if they have one way to interact with that type of deal, they have another. So yeah, it, this seems unlikely to make any big waves. The sacrifice ability is interesting. Sacrifice scry two is pretty big, uh, but you know, safety valve here costs a black mana. If you make a free sacrifice, i I'm always concerned at a black mana much less threatening still potentially relevant but like you said doesn't really seem like this is supposed to be a constructed home run yes uh last card at sushi the blazing sky 2rr44 legendary creature dragon spirit flying trample when this dies choose one exile the top two cards of your library until the end of your next turn you may play those cards or create three treasure tokens i absolutely love this Talk to me about what you want to do with this card, because I, this this reads to me as like a very fair, very reasonable dragon. But when you tack on legendariness to it, I get a little lower on it just because even though you're getting a dice trigger, it just feels like I can't do the thing where like, for instance, again, in alchemy, there is a dragon's deck. It's often mono red, sometimes splash another color, but you're just curving very consistently into your four drop, usually town razor tyrant five drop gold span dragon something like this throws a wrench into the plan of just jamming your deck full of atsushi because wow this is going to be a nightmare set for my pronunciation um but the legendary drawback seems like it will matter a bit on this card and i i'm just having a hard time visualizing a home for it right now well i i never said that i i like it for constructed ah got it <laughs> got it so uh the Original Kamigawa Dragons were very popular, a big part of that set. Yep. And now instead of like six mana with a big dice trigger, it looks like, you know, this thing is four mana. You get to choose two smaller things, but like four mana puts it more in line with, you know, today's standard sensibilities rather than back then. And getting a choice, I think, is very, very cool. So this is like on on the fringe of playability to me, but... All the stuff is appealing, you know? Yeah, and that is a lot of ramp 
too. Like going from four to if this dies eight on your next turn, you know, every set, there's some reason to be tricked into playing big red. They never, ever pan out. But this is another one. And if there's a huge planeswalker threat that we want to ramp to or something like that, maybe that's how we get it done. Again, in combination with Goldspan Dragon, you're talking just massive, massive mana output. So, uh, you know, we've experimented with treasure type stuff a bunch. Maybe this is just another piece of that puzzle. Yeah. Or, or you know, you get the potential to just draw two cards off of this thing, which is yeah. not that bad either. Yeah, a conditional draw, but a, a draw nonetheless. And it is play those cards so you can play the lands you hit. It seems fun. And it like this existing uh, being a cycle, I hope that they are all kind of similar to this. That makes me happy, too, because it is more of potentially like a good appealing thing for me to build around in the future. So it's not just like, oh, this card existing in a vacuum makes me happy. It like makes me happy for the whole of the set. It's so funny to think back to the the six mana champions of Kamigawa version. And those were extremely important standard cards. Like they just mattered a bunch. And now you think about a six mana dragon like that, having the same type of impact on the game. It's never going to quite go that way again. I like that they were, weren't super adherent to, you know, tradition. That Elder Dragon Legend should always be these six mana things. I think you're right. Bringing it more in line with modern standards makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, th I think like Yosei would stand up to today's sensibilities, right? But the other ones, maybe not so much. I think they wouldn't make Yosei anymore because of the, the tap prison stuff. I think they would try and avoid that. But that's what makes it so it could actually stand up today, right? Right. I, I think like the, you remember the, like the greater good? Yep. Give some giving Gorio's Vengeance deck. I do. I think that would be a fine standard deck. I would happily play that deck for sure. Hell yeah. Uh, so that's it for previews. Uh, if you have not seen the full art basics, definitely check those out. Uh, you know, maybe they're not for everyone or whatever, but I've seen almost unanimously positive reviews so oh, they're, far. They're just beautiful. Like, I, obviously, you could be at a saturation point with your full art lands and maybe you have your full art, full art lands that you want, but I, I love these and I could see myself going deep and maybe some shiny copies of these for my my land box or in order yeah i could see it i mean i i don't know when the next time i'm gonna play live is right but i don't think any well i shouldn't say that a lot of people know when the next time is i i agree with you i have no idea when i'll do it again either things are uh looking mighty grim these days for my next um, live event yeah it's not great but uh i'm sure when that event rolls around i will likely look into getting some copies of these because they're they're very nice but i don't know you, you talk about like everyone has like their basic land type like their favorite or whatever and it's like i do too but at this point i have like four different versions of those in, yep. in my collection because i've been like ooh, well now i'm gonna play with these and then like a new cool one comes out i'm, I'm just the fish right i'm right there with you but i will tell you that when i started appreciating these aesthetic things a little bit more and i stopped viewing the cards as just like utility pieces i actually began to appreciate them more so that, that's just me everyone's different but it, it meant something to me when i actually started seeking out the versions of things i wanted so i am i'm always grateful for those opportunities even if i have a little bit of fatigue at this stage well i've always appreciated 
Japanese cards, you know? Mm. So that was like always a thing that I kind of tried to do. Not, not super hardcore or anything, but it was definitely a thing that I, I did appreciate. It's like, yeah, they're game pieces, but I want to play with like the ones that I like. Yeah. If I can. Sure. Absolutely. Anyway, now, uh, onto present day items. We have alchemy. So I have, I have two bookkeeping items I would like to get out of the way with regards to alchemy. Let's do it. First, you said you were setting this format out. More or Is less. That, have you played this format? Uh, so I had to write an article this week mm-hmm. and I asked Cedric Phillips whether or not he wanted modern or alchemy. Unfortunately, he said alchemy. Uh, I gave him two options of those and he chose one. And so then I built that deck and played with it. Okay, but you are now in the alchemy ecosystem. They have gotten your wild cards. I've, I've literally crafted four rares. That's it. I got you. Hook, line, and sinker. Get that whale. Bring him in. Make, make the lamp oil from him. I still have 20 rare wild cards left. Well, I am out of wild cards. Obviously. I'm just out Obviously. completely. Uh, Did you, know, you have building, to re-up, though? Uh, several times, yes. Oh, and my God. Building the Avalor deck didn't help. I mean, that was just like... May as well set my wild cards on the fire. The what deck? Oglor. Oh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's been lean times over in our household. I'm skipping meals now so I can get <laughs> more wild cards. But we'll, we'll recover from this. We always make it out the other side. Uh, second bookkeeping item. Arena Deckless Twitter account. Put out a poll earlier this week. Oh, asking, yeah. Asking people. Very simple question. Yes or no, basically a, a binary presentation. And I believe the exact wording was, do you like alchemy? Yeah, basically. It was just can, like alchemy parentheses, like dislike results or whatever. Can you, can you present to me the results of that poll? I'm looking it up right now. Okay. I haven't, I haven't seen the final results. I did vote and uh, I know what was leading when I cast my vote. Yeah, I voted I the same see. as you, by the way. Okay. We'll talk about that once we have our, our tally here. Okay. So, somewhat surprisingly, uh, only 4,804 votes were cast. Okay. So, only about of our, a sixth of our active followers, right? Uh, less. Less. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe like a seventh. Whatever. Uh, like it was 23%. Dislike it was 42% results was 35%. Okay, so so like it finishing a fairly distant third. Uh I voted like it. Same. You voted like it. I am kind of I don't know if sad is the right word. I'm, I I'll I'll get over it. I'm a little disappointed how it has hit thus far because playing the games think it does what it set out to do and uh, it's a tentative like for sure i wasn't like slam dunk absolutely in love with this format they nailed it also same um but as far as a goal of like dealing with the problems of standard and making it a format that i could play now and conceivably continue to play in the future because anything gets out of whack i assume more adjustments are coming i i think they i think they did it and as long as that's happening, I'm 
probably going to continue to like alchemy. I'm probably going to choose to play alchemy over standard. I, I mean, you couldn't. I guess I do get paid to play standard. I still won't do it, and I, I just won't. It's not. It doesn't interest me right now. But I'll I'll sit down and happily play some games of alchemy and build decks. And it's an interesting space. But people have not really gotten on board. And how much of that do you think is born of actual? Alchemy misses the mark, or how much of it is a growing frustration with just Arena as a whole? I think there are a lot of parts because, I mean, you also have to take into consideration that it's coming from like the AD Twitter account, which is an account, you know, if you follow it, you are looking for like, you know, standard technology deck list, like, you know, winning things, right? Yep. We share historic deck lists, but mostly you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that also adds to it because like, I don't know, I feel like historic is also like a, a fairly entrenched market, you know? Yeah. So basically, my point is that those folks are usually among the loudest complainers on the Internet. And it doesn't surprise me to see that like dislike one out over like to that crowd. Whereas I think that, you know, consider our following versus the arena player base as a whole. And our our Twitter account is just a fraction of that player base. And I think it is predisposed to be the fraction of the player base that is predisposed to disliking. it. So I'm going to ask you a question that you can't possibly know the answer to, but I, I want your opinion anyway. I can certainly try and speak as though I know the answer. Great. That's all I, that's all I ever I have many do. opinions. Uh, so the the main Wizards Magic Twitter puts out the exact same poll. How do their results differ from what we would get? Do you, do you think they skew more heavily in favor of like? So I, I think the folks that are like playing Alchemy and, you know, just like it, it, interacting with Arena in whatever way that they do, maybe it's like you log on, you know, once a day or once a week or however you know, casually or whatever you want to define it. It's like th those those folks are very unlikely to be following like the wizard's Twitter account. I don't yeah. know. I, I think it's more reasonable for like a, a more less enfranchised or casual, however you want to describe that player to not necessarily be uh, like up to date on the latest news and all that versus just like logging into the game and playing it. And the people who are just logging into the game and playing like whatever it offers them, I imagine that they're probably going to like alchemy. Uh, yes. So I, I think it, I think it doesn't necessarily skew a hundred percent like the, in the other direction. I think that there are probably going to be a lot of vocal people who dislike it, who are going to like seek out the poll once like their friend tells them that the poll is up or whatever, even if they don't follow the account, they're going to go find it just to click dislike. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it's going to be, you know, maybe maybe closer to sixty forty than than ours was with dislike. But it's such an interesting like. There, there's so many factors influencing how Twitter polls turn out, and I think it would be very easy to write off our poll as one that will attract people who are critical of wizards because we are often critical of wizards. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, but at the same time, like. I actually sort of went out of my way to do the other thing and note in a response that I, I liked alchemy because I I sort of wanted to fight against that interpretation of the poll 
because there's no, there's no reason to lie to us in the poll. Like, I just want to, I really want to know what people think about this format because it's going to influence how we approach it. Like, are we going to continue to produce content about it? How deeply are we going to engage with it? What, anytime something like this comes up, we have to decide what our response is as content creators, as well as players. So it's, it's multifaceted, it's complicated. And I really just wanted some data points, but most of the feedback I have gotten from, uh, the broader player base is it, it leans negative people are not thrilled about this and i think very little of it has to do with actual sit down and play a game of alchemy right almost none of well, it well because that that almost has nothing to do with it right because the things that they're railing the against are you know my historic card got nerfed and i'm not yes. getting wild card back and that's that's horseshit it just is right they, they should absolutely fix that and that is a thing that we need to constantly be bringing up so that they know that it is a point of contention, a thing that we don't like, a thing that they have to fix eventually. Yeah. And it's frustrating because like no implementation of the game can ever stand on its own. Nothing can ever be taken at face value because it's all reflective of like how much of this is a money-making scheme. Scheme is harsh. How much of this is designed with profit in mind? How much of this is designed with <laughs> this other thing in mind? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen some schemes, man. Yeah. You know, this is... It's it's not really a scheme, but no, yeah, it is. It is definitely trying to do the thing where they print money. But those, those are questions that like Magic has had to answer from the beginning. I know. I know Magic has changed the way games are monetized and how all of this works, and it is weird and complicated. But I understand very much being frustrated about historic, and I think these people are like sort of right. The only way anything happens is if you're loud about it, and actually, the only way anything really happens about it is if it affects the bottom line. So. Well, I think no matter what, people are just going to keep playing. And there's just so many people involved that it's difficult to organize anything that would affect their bottom line anyway. So I, I don't think that even like, I don't know, bringing that up as a way to combat it is reasonable because you can't really act on it. Even if that's true, though, like no one wants to sit there silently. You know what I mean? Like if it, if it yeah. does. So like I'm I'm not playing in it because I think like the buy-in is too high. So many of these things are uh, rares and mythics. And also the historic thing is just a complete mess. And I, I'm doing that, but I also know that it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, I, I get it. The It's hard not to be defeatist about this stuff because we've just been through it too many times. I'll say that I saw some coverage of the alchemy format in places where i wouldn't expect really to see it like you know esportsy type places where they were talking about how the economic realities of arena are getting to be harsh uh, i saw a really nice thread from drew levin who discussed i don't know if you caught this but just laying out his thoughts on the monetization in general and drew's got a background in working on this type of stuff yeah drew's gas very yeah, so very very knowledgeable on this stuff Yep, very interesting to hear from an industry insider and you know a fan of Magic as well, and who really knows his stuff when it comes to online gaming monetization and his thoughts on it. So, uh, I, I I don't know what our engagement with this particular topic has to be. I sort of want to say this is the last time we go there. Know that we share the same concerns that our listeners do. I, as far as the historic model, it sucks. 
there needs to be some type of wildcard refunds. And I agree that the arena economy feels like it's spiraling out of control. But I think for now, I just mostly want to talk about the cards as magic cards. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I think it's important to cover the format regardless of how much people want to play it because there are going to be, be people who are like complaining about it, but then playing the PTQ because it's a PTQ. Right. And I, I, I think that that's reasonable, you know? Um, but for, for you to say something like, you know, with, with the poll, like, is it indicative of people's just like gut reactions or is it them actually sitting down and playing? It's like, I, I find it difficult to ask someone to sit down and actually play with it because the buy-in is so large. Fair. No, that's a fair criticism. You know what I mean? And so for me, I was able to like play a deck. Like I waited a few days and saw the things that were doing pretty well or like the things that people liked. And then I pitched uh, a topic to Cedric that was a deck that only had four alchemy cards in it. And I, I think that's a, th a way for other people to interact with the format too. You know, uh, it's not how I would normally interact with it. Right. And that's basically what you've been doing where you're like, Oh, I'm going to play with all like the shiny new things. Like you, you built an Ogler deck, which, you know, rip your wild cards. But like I knew going in, that was the thing where it's like, this is probably going to miss. So I'm just not even going to waste my time. Very good choice. And I also think you chose your topic very well because not only did you make a good deck, I think that something along the lines of what you were working on is actually the best deck in alchemy as it stands right now. And I think the tools are somewhat limited to challenge it. I am talking about mono black, mono black sacrifice slash uh, blood slash stuff. I don't, I don't even know how to classify this deck. There's a lot of different looks at it. Uh, you've seen snow builds, blood on the snow focus going really high. Personally, I like the leaner low to the ground builds like you were working on. Sanguine Brushstroke is the truth. That card, it makes some cardboard, man. And it's like, oh, it leaves so much behind. And I started when I was building other decks, I realized how important Sanguine Brushstroke was going to be to the format. So I'm like, well, you know, I sort of need to slot some low cost enchantment removal into my deck. So things like Outland Liberator started making the cut in my werewolves list. But you can't really interact with Sanguine Brushstroke that way because it leaves behind so much cardboard in addition to that reach that it then derives from the blood tokens. It's it's just a house of a card. Yeah, uh, I think the blood, artist, the blood artist is the main thing, right? Yeah. And it's not just like, oh, it gives you another payoff for sacrificing things or things dying. Um, like you, you now have it in combination with Meat Hook Massacre, which means that you get to double up a lot more often and that's how you win a lot of your games. But like, it also creates like an actual two drop, whereas your two drops were not very good before. And now your Agony's Awakenings along with like all of your good ones. And now you have Blood Arse at two and you have Felsinger at three, which is like a relatively new addition too. So your Agony's Awakenings are just like fully charged in the mid to late game too. Uh, overall, it's pretty nice. But like, yeah, the, the Brushstroke itself, once it's in play, at least for the way that I've been building the deck, like isn't that big of a deal because you're not going super hard on blood stuff. Although there are definitely builds out there that do. There are, but even in 
in the instance where you're not going super hard, if you have access to a reasonable amount of blood, and usually it's just, you'll have to forgive me, the, the two mana vampire where something dies makes a blood token. Voldaren Bloodcaster. Voldaren Bloodcaster. You don't have to go much harder than that. The amount of reach you get in some scenarios where it's like, oh, wait, if I just meat hook massacre my board away and you know my opponent's one creature and i make four blood tokens i actually have lethal here from this otherwise very stable position but it's not just like that one instance the deck is 40 different ways to come up with oh i just have lethal like oh my fell stinger is coming towards your face or here's my blood artist turn where i'm able to sacrifice a bunch of things and or i already have meat hook massacre on the battlefield or if i play this meat hook massacre just empty my opponent can never kill a creature again and there's no way they can win through that scenario and just reach after reach after reach after card draw after card draw after card draw so it just does its thing every game you first shipped a version with 12 one drops i know you've moved that number around a bit but like I, I think that's huge too. We just consistently have that one drop threat. You can always go deadly dispute into bigger play on your next turn. And I also like what you've been working on as far as your top end of the deck, which I haven't seen anyone else do. But if you listened to our show last week, I think this move makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think I started with like a more traditional version, like closer to what people were playing in standard before. It was like, oh, you play like some wolves. I already decided that Blood on the Snow is probably like a little bit too slow because the format's relatively powerful with all these new cards. And I I was already like, "Eh, you know, you can't play like that much top end, right? So then I was playing with like some wolves and stuff. And it's like obviously a very powerful card and does uh, work well with all the rest of the stuff in the deck. But it's also just completely unnecessary because you have redundancy for everything now. You have like Meat Hook and Blood Artist. You have 12 one-drops. You have Deadly Dispute and Fell Stinger. So you're just like doubled and tripled up on a lot of these effects to the point where you don't really need the Lolf type of stuff anymore. So at that point, I was just like, yeah, just cut all the stuff that's uh, above three mana because you don't really need it. And while that's mostly true, Key to the Archive is kind of just like too good not to play in a lot of instances. And... This deck is very good at slowing your opponent down because you have the 12 one drops that are either going to like, you know, block stuff or get deadly disputed away. You have Infernal Grasp and a bunch of other different early game removal spells if you want. You have Felstinger to block. Like, you're so good at getting to turn four at like 15 life and be able to just like spend your mana just like drawing more cards if you want to. But like, Key to the Archive is so much better than that stuff because you get a really good magic card out of it most of the time. And then it also just allows your Meat Hook Maskers to scale up to kill stuff like Old Growth Troll or whatever that might outsize it normally. So, uh, yeah, the the deck just also has a bunch of card drawing, a bunch of ways to use its mana. So getting a thing that that ramps you twice is also really good. So, yeah, Key key has been super nice. I don't think that it's like a sacred cow type of thing where you absolutely can't cut it from the archetype. But right now, like the way the deck is lined up, the way the format's lined up, like you can definitely play some with a very low opportunity cost. It's not, you You never have hands where you're like, oh, it's like too clunky for me to play out key or whatever. So I, I think that if you can get away with playing the card, you absolutely should, but there might be a time and place where you can't. One of the things we talked about going into the pre-alchemy season was that you just shouldn't run out of cardboard anymore. There's There's too many ways to generate things. 
And especially in this deck where everything is the same, everything is redundant, you're super good at drawing a bunch of cards with Felstinger and Deadly Dispute, and if you need a copy of Village Rights too, so be it. Your Agadim's Awakenings will rebuy a bunch of stuff and draw more cards. And all of these things, you're only limited by how much mana you have. Despite the fact that everything in your deck costs one, two, or three, that's really the only limitation you face. And if you have more mana, you're almost certainly going to find a way to use it. And the, the points where I have like... I really have not lost many games with this deck, but the points where I am threatened is where things do get too big. Something like dragons outscales the removal I have available. It's very easy to massacre away a board full of two toughness creatures, but it gets harder when you start dealing with fours and fives. But not really if you have key to the archive, you'll just reach that mana threshold because you're never missing a land drop because you draw cards all the time and have environmental sciences. So it, it's a strange fit. It may not really seem like it's the card for the deck at first blush but play with it a little bit and it does make a lot of sense and just gives you access to such powerful effects that you shouldn't have access to like this claim the firstborn is probably the worst card that you can get from key to the archive <laughs> but good in but the deck <laughs> really good in this deck yeah i've had so many blowouts my opponent with uh, claim the firstborn so really no way for this card to go wrong time warp forget about it you're just running away with the game yeah, it's funny too in in uh you know writing the article and, and talking about things. It's like this is I'm putting forth a best of three version because I'm I'm mostly playing best of three, but I recognize that with four eye twitch, you could certainly fill out your sideboard with more lessons and like containment breaches like the green disenchant, teachings of the archaic was already uh like in the conversation for things that you could play even in mono black. And because of like the Faceless Haven nerf and because you're not playing Blood on the Snow and because now you have so many black one drops, you kind of want all your lands to make black so you don't really have to play Faceless Haven anymore, which means that if you wanted to play off-color pathways to facilitate the lessons, you could. And then with, with Key to the Archive, it was like, well, you know, sometimes they just blow up your key and that might be a more common thing. Like, you know, you were talking about putting Outland Liberator in your Werewolf deck, right? And yep. If you get an electrolyze uh, or something like that and your key gets blown up, you're just kind of sunk unless you're able to get a couple treasure tokens together. But I think it's like actually technically correct for you to just play a bunch of off-color pathways now in case that situation happens. Or if you're playing best of one and want to use a bunch of off-color lessons, like that's fine too. Yeah, seems fine to me. I, I do think you'll always spend as much black mana as possible. So you certainly want to not trick yourself into over setting up for any of these scenarios right but yeah. having that emergency out will certainly be useful yep yeah i mean it's it's really weird too because i i did it for a couple of games when i switched to best of one just to get like more reps and see if people were playing things that were dramatically different than best of three and uh so i did add some pathways and like the lessons and stuff and it was annoying that it was like basically an extra click every time when right. i was basically never you know playing like the the blue side of the blue pathway or whatever uh so if you want to just kind of be lazy about it i i totally understand that and yeah it was never like oh i'm gonna like on turn two play my blue pathway just in case nah, it just like never happened it was never correct to do so yeah like turn yep. four maybe you can make an argument for it but even then even then, it's it's risky and it could come back to bite you. So I think you default to black and this is just like your emergency out. And uh, it may not be worth the struggles in that case of the clicks, but in an optimal world where you have a big alchemy tournament coming up, certainly should consider that line. Yeah, a bunch of little optimizations that you can do. And 
Uh, the deck has a ton of different options, especially now with Cursebound Witch in the mix. You have so many one-drops that you are maybe incentivized to play a copy or two of Village Rights, and that was something that I experimented with. Uh, but between like Deadly Dispute and Felstinger, it seemed fine to just have the eight. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, there's like all the different removal combinations. There's you play some copies of Bloodcaster to be able to make some more bloods to get a little bit more use out of your brushstrokes. You could play Jadar as more sacrifice fuel for Felstinger and Village Rights, Eaten Alive, stuff like that if you want to. Uh, also gives you like a little bit more of a clock, which is not that bad. And a consistent like die trigger every turn for Blood Artist, which is cool too. So yep. A lot of a lot of different ways to build in the archetype, even though it's just ostensibly a mono black deck, you know, which is kind of weird considering it's like still a pretty small standard too. But alchemy does add a lot of cards. Does a lot of meaningful ones, especially for this color too. Uh, so it sounds like we agree on the best deck. I wonder if we agree on what else we see in the top tiers for, for me right behind mono black and maybe only behind because uh, I've worked on it less recently is both is it control and Azorius control. I think both of these decks still have tremendous tools in the case of is it galvanic iteration still a messed up magic card even in the absence of Alrin's epiphany it is very easy to play tempo ish style of games with things like fading hope just work up to Hellbreak Horror or a bunch of other of the very diverse threats that the Izzet deck has access to. You have things like Smoldering Egg, Leer, all these options are completely reasonable, all worth considering. So I, I still have had a lot of success with Izzet. And then there's Azorius, which I think benefits mostly from Divine Purge and having what I believe is the best sweeper in the alchemy format. The, the thing with the blood tokens and treasures and clues has become way more relevant than I expected to, Yeah, given the prevalence of mono black and just how good it is. So there's a whole bunch of reasons that I didn't see coming to reach out into Azorius. And you can still do the, all the end games. You can do Hullbreaker Horror end games there. You can do Teferi Key to the Archive. I think that is completely reasonable. Uh, you can just do the, what's the big Seek Spell card? Discover something, I think. Uh, man, they added a whole bunch of new cards for me to remember the names of. Basically, six six mana instant, seek three non-land cards, and then oh, reduce yeah. the cost of all the I, hand. <laughs> this I, card is gas. Have you played with this card? It, it is. Well, I haven't because I don't own it, but I've I've certainly played against it, and I've I've also been watching a bunch of streams. But uh, they uh, that card didn't register as a seek card for me for whatever reason. It's just like you know. It's draw three, but it's better than that, right? Because you have to oh, draw yeah. spells to reduce the mana cost or whatever. But so control, I have not worked on because it would require a lot of new cards. But control to me does seem like the thing that is potentially broken because of all the cost reduction. Uh, yep. There's like, is it Geist Blaster? Some some kind of Geist. I, I, Geist Blaster sounds very weird to me, but it might be called is, that. Is two mana one three that reduces an instant or sorcery by two? Yeah. So you do that to the six mana card that then like draws you three spells and reduces their cost. You have key to the archive for ramp. You can do Teferi things if you want. So yeah. that all the all this stuff plays really well with divide by zero too because you're just putting more cards into your hand and like sure mascot exhibition being cost reduction and if you ever galvanic iteration 
the seat card, you, you're just you're going off at that point, basically. Yeah. Uh, so all of that stuff seems very, very powerful to me. Uh, just too much of a wild card investment. Fair enough. I, I think that is very much on par with the mono black deck for the best thing to be doing in the format. A little disappointing that the is it stuff is as good as it is because it feels a lot like standard. Uh, but that's really the only hard overlap with standard I see. Now, I still think that alchemy is too similar to standard to justify its existence at this moment because the play patterns are all in the same vein ish. I think that problem only stands, though, for a couple more sets, because once every set has an alchemy release tied to it, there's no way this set, this card pool tracks standard at all. It'll just diverge so completely. So at the moment, it's a little strange. I think that's going to, as time goes on, be less and less of a problem. Yeah, there is definitely going to be a point where it diverges so wildly, uh, either because the alchemy cards are so good or or something. I don't know. Maybe there's just like too many different things to be doing in alchemy that like the, the standard stuff doesn't keep up power level wise or uh because the, the strategies just become inherently different you know like yeah. what what if uh there's like a, a mono black sort of controly deck in standard and in alchemy and they just end up playing like 30 different cards right like that that could very easily be the case yeah, I mean, I would argue it already is. The The difference in having a deck with Sanguine Brushstroke and Cursebound Witch is pretty large. I, I think that plays completely differently than anything that's offered in Standard. And even if there is a mono black deck in Standard, just not the same. And obviously, we know the context is a, a world difference with the absence of Epiphany. So, Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you're talking about Galvanic Iteration being so good still, which is true, and the control decks being able to go over the top and everything. But in the case of the mono black deck, like there's there's no way to really, you know, put them away to the point where they're not just going to get drained out eventually. Correct. So Correct. that is the interesting turning point. Like when you don't have Alarm's Epiphany, like how, how are you actually going to kill the black deck that has Infernal Grasps and a bunch of life gain and stuff? Yeah, that's why... It's strange. The Holebreaker horror stuff is good, but against specifically mono black, I think they can often just reach right through you and you don't necessarily benefit from resetting their board a bunch of times. All their stuff costs one, two. They have a ton of mana available. So it's it's an awkward situation. I think that's a huge part of the appeal of Divine Purge is a way to clean all this stuff up a little bit more. But you got to clean it all up or like you have to gain a bunch of life or something to be able to put these black decks away because they will hang around against all the control decks for sure yeah they they go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you in, in card advantage so you're you're both going to have like seven cards on every turn and there's just going to be a ton of fireworks and i think eventually you're going to get nickel and dimed out and i'm not sure what the best way to prevent that is yep so that is why i have mono black a little bit higher right now is because i've worked on that more recently i want to go back to the drawing board think about improving both is it and Azorius against Mono Black. Really think about my end games a little bit more and how to sort of go back over the top of them. I think they can figure that puzzle out. Most of the lists I have seen thus far aren't focused enough on that matchup, which is fair. There's there's no real metagame yet, but I have a strong sense that if there was a real tournament right now, I think Mono Black is the deck to beat. I think so too. I don't know if uh, other folks feel the same because there's definitely a lot of love for inquisitor captain and there's like party setups or just cleric setups uh the interaction with glass pool mimic is obviously very strong there are some decks that 
are playing like key to the archive and teleportation circle and trying to get like a lot more value that way. So there's, there's a lot of different instances of that archetype and people obviously love it. I think that it's very cool. And I also think that it probably loses to a well-built mono black or control deck. Yep. That's been my experience. I think the deck is super cool. I think there's a bunch of ways to do it. Uh, here's a little bit of a warning. You haven't experienced this yet because you haven't spent the wild cards. If you hit glass pool mimic enough times off your Inquisitor Captain, it stops working at some point. So just be aware of that. I What do you mean? So, How does it stop working? Because you don't have enough creatures in your library, graveyard, or it, it doesn't oh, check the battlefield. Sure. Yeah. So you so you run below the threshold at some point. And in my case, I copied the Inquisitor Captain again. There was something better to copy though at that moment. Okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting because it's weird. It's a corner case, and I didn't really know what was happening when it first happened. I'm like, well, I still have twenty, but if if I am correct, it just doesn't check stuff on the battlefield. Yeah, graveyard hand library. So yeah. yeah, I was initially positing like, oh, you could play like twenty two creatures. Nope, that's probably wrong. When, yeah, when you have glass pool. Yep. Yeah, you can go through the the whole set, and I, I actually lost the game because of it. So, uh, yeah, just something to keep track of. I don't know how often it's going to come up, but that is like the go to interaction with inquisitor captain right now help to hit a glass pool mimic and when you do you keep the train rolling all these decks seem good but a tier below what i'm presently playing uh the cleric stuff is interesting a lot of clerics list i've seen are just like making big bodies and doing life gain shenanigans and i don't think that beats anyone i think absolutely every deck can play through big bodies maybe with the exception of like werewolves which is why I would also have werewolves a tier below the decks we've spoken about thus far. Same. I agree with that. I think that werewolves got a lot of upgrades, but it's also like, okay, well now you're a playable gruel aggro deck and you have to compete with all these like supercharged versions of these other archetypes. So you're, you still end up being like a step below, which is pretty unfortunate, but it's still viable. It is still definitely a thing that you can do if you're, you know, really pigeonholing yourself into wanting to play that archetype or that is the archetype that you've invested the wild cards in or whatever yep i I think it's okay it just has some strategical weaknesses but as far as like you're paired against random deck on the ladder that someone's trying out werewolves is one of the most brutal tests you can put them to i just think in terms of what's actually very good in the format they don't line up great yeah i mean i've definitely had games against them from the mono black side of things where they just get out of control too quick you know, they, they have a yep. full curve. They start on turn one now or they can. And then Reckless Storm Seeker is still very good. Uh, Volatile Arsonist. Is that the card? Volatile Arsonist. The the five drop, four, four haste menace that yes, deals one, that. one to three things. It's like that. That ends up like being pretty good against like your crappy shambling gas blockers okay. and stuff. So, yeah, I, I remember like, okay. I liked this card in previous season and it kind of fell off my radar. Yeah, uh, I I didn't really like it because the comparison to Goldspan Dragon was just like, why would you ever? But as it turns out, when you nerf Goldspan Dragon, then this card seems to be more appealing, you know, so. Oh, that's a really nice transition, a deck that we haven't really spoken about that I think is actually a tier above stuff like Clerics, stuff like Werewolves is the Dragon's deck. Have you seen this deck much, played with it? I've played against it a couple times, but it seems like... The, the players that I played against had like 
you know, the the beta versions of the deck or whatever. It didn't it didn't seem like they were super well tuned. Definitely saw like a lot of random card choices that I wouldn't expect to be in the final version. Um, but yeah, it's weird where like the Inquisitor Captain decks are very value based. They go wide. They never really run out of gas. And the Dragons deck to me seems like more similar to Mono Green where you're like jam a big threat jam a big threat and like maybe the last one kills you is that accurate yep. or is there a better way to 100 percent accurate 100 percent accurate i i do think it has more reach than you would anticipate at first blush i i agree with you that most of the lists i've seen have been built what i would say is incorrectly i think you're supposed to focus on some pretty clear things you want to make sure you're maximizing your four drop on turn three i think that means you know, you max your whelp, you max your orb of dragon kind, and you should probably look at some uh, brazen outlaws as well, magdas, because you, you just need to do this thing. You are mulliganing any hand that cannot accelerate starting on turn two. So make it happen as much as possible. After that, there's the selection of four drops. I see a lot of Moonveil Regents. You know I love that card. I don't think it really fits in this archetype. It's never going to actually chain you into multiple cards because that's just not how your deck is set up. Manicur's a little too clunky for that. Yeah, so the way I've set up my deck is, I think it's interesting. So you're going to let me toot my own horn a little bit about my build. Let's go. And see if I can get other people on board. So like I said, I, ha I have 10 of the two drop accelerants. I don't think you can play like a full four Magda. That's kind of silly. I'm on a snow-covered mana base. I think Faceless Haven is important due to some of the other cards I'm playing. My four drops of choice, I have the full set of Town Razor Tyrant. I think that one's like default. Very, Bust very good. Busted card. Yeah. After that, I go Mana Form Hellkite in my four slot. Now, that seems weird until I tell you about some of the other spells I'm playing. I max Shatter Skull Smashing. That, I also have makes two, two Alchemist Gambit which is the piece that I think so many of these decks are missing that they 100% should be playing. I can't tell you what percentage of my games I win with Alchemist Gambit. It's very, very high, though. So many of my games are just setting up spots where, like, I Goldspan Dragon attack, have three mana left over, Alchemist Gambit, and then we're off to the races and everything's good. And I don't know why I haven't seen as many of these in the, the list as there should be present. It's, I get it's a scary card, but this is just what your deck does. It just throws a big threat at you and hopes it's enough. And if you give your opponents enough time, even things like mono black are going to invalidate the stupid, here's my big dragon, what are you gonna do about it plan? Uh, so that's another reason why I'm into the snow mana base. Faceless Haven is important in those scenarios because it's just a little bit of extra reach you can have on the battlefield. As far as playing a little bit longer game and just being like, oh, here's my thing, can I do anything else? I have the Orb of Dragonkind, which I think is great in terms it's both the Accelerant and being able to go to the top of your deck. I also have three Chandra Dress to kill. I've seen some people play four. I don't think you should ever play none. I think playing some number of this card is good, both because it gives you turn four Goldspan Dragon, and it's a way to get a little bit more reach into your deck as far as both direct damage and just finding more threats. So this card seems like another perfect fit to me. Uh, then we just have Removal. I have three Frostbrite for dragon fire just to clean stuff up you can make an argument that exile base removal might be better in the frostbite slot right now but i think the three toughness breakpoint has come up a few times for me uh inquisitor captain is a big one where like just cleaning that up nicely with your one mana card is good matters against but werewolves too matters against werewolves but i think the big thing is the alchemist gambit maniform hellkite shatter skull smashing setup i think that 
is what has taken my list to a little bit higher level than some of the other lists I've seen around. Yeah, I like that. That sounds good to me. Uh, so you just have the, the 12 dragons and that's it? Uh, two mana form, four town raiser, four gold span, two inferno of the star mount. Okay. Yeah, so you do have 12, just not the 12 I thought. Yes. Uh, you can make a case that you just max Maniform Hellkite. I don't hate that. Or you can also make a case that I should actually have more than 12 because things like Orb of Dragonkind whiffing would be an absolute disaster. But the slots are tight. I'm I'm not budging on Alchemist Gambit. I think it's critical to the archetype. And I'm really big on having some extra two-drop accelerants. So I think I'd be cutting removal in that spot. And in some metagames, that's probably fine. And you can just max the dragon count a little bit more. For the time being, I've been happy with this distribution, though. Yeah, I would think that if you're playing 10 two drops to try and accelerate to a four, you would want eight fours. Just maximize fours. Yeah, that's that's fair. I think Inferno is like a big boom boom, and you, you hit those mana thresholds a lot, but your, your point is also reasonable, and maybe that's something I can look at in terms of just really maximizing that curve. And then maybe there's even room for like, a third Magda in that scenario where you're that focused on the four. Yeah, maybe. No, that sounds good to me. I like that end game. That sounds really good. Yeah, Alchemist Gambit is just such an explosive card here because it's so cheap. Like the three mana threat of this card when you have Goldspan Dragon producing two mana for you, you can you can just do it at almost any time. Final Fortune is good, y'all. It is. It's a good magic card. It's, it is an old one. Uh, probably older than a significant portion of our listeners uh, yeah <laughs> but uh yeah that card used to kill people and it was it was pretty good and i think that and there have been like some iterations of it over the years whereas like maybe a deck would play one or they would sideboard one or whatever but yep. in in a deck like this where you are just like you know play a big threat play a big threat you don't really have anything resembling a long game especially against a bunch of decks that can play a long game and will bury you in card advantage I think having an effect like that is super important. So that's that's a good fight. I'll tell you too, if, if you're real scared of Final Fortune, you'll cast this for seven quite a bit as well. With your access to treasures, it's it's really not hard to hit your uh, breakpoints there and just go ahead and take the extra turn. Yeah, I can't do the pathway stuff because of the snow mana base, but, but the treasures make it seem fine to me. Yep, completely fine. Yeah, especially once you have Magnet too. You have a, enough things that are doing that sort of stuff. Yep. So I, I think that kind of closes out my top top of the line stuff. Anything I didn't mention that you've been impressed with? Not really, because I've been playing mono black and just kind of killing people. So yeah. <laughs> it really feels like it has no bad matchups as it's set up right now. I, I am sure there's something you can do against it, but I spent most of my time working on it and not really trying to beat it. Now I want to go back in and see if I can find some ways to get ahead of mono black. The scariest stuff has been the folks jumping through all of the hoops to try and make Epiphany a thing because that sort of strat does still go over the top of you. And I don't, I don't think it's good enough against the other decks in the format, but it's still, it's certainly something that's viable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it a lot with the, the Geist you mentioned, the mana reduction right. Geist and sure, that, that seems very reasonable to me. Yeah. So that, that's been the scariest thing where, you know, is it, foretells a card on turn two and i'm just like damn it <laughs> but <laughs> i've felt this before i've been through this yeah uh so that's been about it but when when they're just like jess guy or azorius or whatever it's like yeah you're doing like some cool stuff you're drawing a bunch of cards but they can never stick anything to actually kill you so it doesn't really matter yep for sure 
And if, if they ever figure out that piece of the puzzle, then things might be a little bit different. But as is, it, it just seems like it's mono black all the way. With you on the whole, though, I'm very appreciative that I had a reason to go back and touch these cards again. I, I just would have been done with this card pool. I was not going back to standard. It was not for me, so I'm I'm thankful this exists. In my eyes, the best case scenario would have been cleaning up the problems of standard and finally putting it in a good place. This is probably the second best thing you could offer me right now, so I, I will take it. Yeah, it's it's fine. I mostly put the poll out as like a, a reality check because I didn't really mind this existing, and also it existing does not come as a surprise to me because. You know, they were already tinkering with uh, the historic rebound stuff with like Oko and uh, Three Drop to Fairy and stuff like that. So it's like, okay, clearly they're experimenting in this space. They want to make it happen. And uh, there have been like talks over like the last few years when Arena was coming out where it was like, you know, how would how would you feel if we just like added cards to standard? Uh, And I I guess this was happening like when Marvel was a thing, because it was like, well, if we had like Duress and Pithing Needle, would this even be an issue? And they were like, do we want to actually ban cards or can we just like print these cards in standard? Well, if we had a mostly digital client, could we do it like on the digital client? What would it mean if we separated like standard and uh, digital standards? Like they've they've been having these conversations for a long time. This was uh, just a matter of time more than anything. But yeah, I just wanted to see where like people were and where their heads were at. And obviously it's not the most scientific poll ever or whatever, but you know, it, it was definitely interesting to see the results. I kind of wish that we got like 20,000 replies on it, though. It was like, you know, 5,000 was lower than I was expecting. Larger sample size, always better. But I don't think there's any sample size we could have gotten to where we would have been like, yes, now we know how the people feel. So. No, I mean, for all we know, we could scale up the sample size and get the same results, right? So totally it, possible. It, it doesn't really matter. But it's, it's still just strange for you know, an account with 30,000 followers. And then I retweeted from mine with like 40,000 and it was still only like 5,000. It's like, oh, it's not a lot. People have had it with our polls and our intrusions on their timeline. I told you, Jerry, never tweet. Nothing good ever comes of it. I hate alchemy so much. I'm not even going to click on this post or I love alchemy so much. I'm playing it and I'm not on Twitter. I don't have time (laughs) for this Twitter poll. Like who knows what happened and who knows if like the results are you know, actively anything reasonable or realistic, but it was, it was fun. It was interesting. It was the thing that actually got me to tweet, which is a rarity these days. Yeah, there we go. It it got you out of your, your tweet cave to come out for your once a year tweet excursion onto the internet. How'd you like it? Did it feel like a warm welcoming place? Uh, It was, I mean, it was mostly fine, right? Cause it was just like numbers rolling in. Uh, yes no no actual interaction yeah so that was cool like i said i wanted those numbers to go higher i expected them to be a little bit higher but there were also folks who took the time to type out a reply and i think that that gave me more insight uh into how people were feeling than a poll ever could so i appreciate oh, i appreciate the folks like sharing their actual thoughts and i i think that they mirrored a lot of the stuff that you know, we're seeing already where it's like very expensive or like, why does this exist versus like literally anything else you could have done? Or why am I not getting wild cards for my nerfed historic cards, stuff like that? And it's like, yeah, okay. You know, we, we get it. 
Give the people their wild cards. Just do it. It it literally costs you nothing. Like you can make up some BS excuse where like, oh, it means that they won't buy packs in the future because they have like four wild cards on their account. But that's bullshit. Just do it. Just make them happy. Make them like not be mad every time they log into your client. I just want to not be mad once. Yeah. Just once. Just once in my life. I just want to feel that the the clarity of of no anger in my soul. That's all I that's all I ask for. Especially in this instance, man. It's so minuscule, right? It's like not that many cards. It's just not a big deal. Just do it. It's fine. Game. Good luck.